The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Hi, I'm Raghu Marcus. Well, I had heard about Deli Belly, but I never knew that you could actually have projectile waste coming from two orifices at once. <laughs> as soon as I recovered from dysentery, I contacted hepatitis. So in my first month in India, I contracted two deadly diseases. Talk about forced uh, purification. So while recouping near the ashram, I waited for word from Ramdas that he had found his guru, but nothing yet. Then I started to feel a little bit more human, and it was arranged that I could have a short visit with the mother of the ashram, again simply called Mother. She was very old, I had heard, and had some sort of motor control muscle disease. And I wondered to myself, geez, it'd be terrible if all I saw was this decrepit old body instead of a holy woman. But off I went, and as I entered her room, she contacted me with her eyes, and all I could feel was a tremendous force field. Suddenly, time and space stopped. I sat in front of her, and for a few brief moments, I had no thoughts and no fear, just a deep feeling of peace and restfulness. Now, I recognized in me at that moment what Ramdas had been talking about. But it was time to keep moving, as I finally heard from Ramdas that he was going to be at the ashram of Swami Muktananda, who had visited the U.S. and whom Ramdas had spent time touring with. I arrived a couple of days before Ramdas and was having what was called darshan of the Swami. Everyone was touching his feet, but I just felt so weird about that. When Ramdas finally arrived, I asked him about it. He said it was just the God in me acknowledging the God in the Swami. Well. No dice on that one. It just felt forced and dumb. Ramdas had other news, though. Maharaji, his guru, was found and was staying in an ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas. Finally, the goal was in sight, and I could meet the guru and then go back home. Now, um, again, uh, oh, and then he said things like, he went to Amarnath Cave. Yeah, but you were perplexed. It didn't mean much to you, did it? No. A few nights later, I was in my room and I thought, gee, one of these days I'll have to take a bus and go over and see Lama Govinda because he's nearby and we dedicated our book to him and he's a very beautiful man and I ought to pay a visit to him. Next morning at 8 o'clock, there's a car and a chauffeur. The guru says you ought to go see Lama Govinda. Now, um, that is the, we're going to um, just say one more thing and then let's take a coffee break. What I experienced at that time of meeting that man, in fact, within those first few minutes of meeting him, 
was the experience of surrender which was no surrender. In other words, I didn't begrudgingly give up my ego. It was as if I came home to the place where I no longer needed it. There was never at any time a specific contract entered into where they said, do you want to stay? Do you want to be trained? Do you want anything? It just all happened because we all knew it was supposed to happen. They took over my complete life at that point. I didn't leave that temple again except to go to Delhi once, which I'll tell you about later, for seven months. When I left, I came back here to the United States for a trial run, so to speak, for some work here, sadhana here. They took over my food, my clothing, my training, everything. Never anybody asked or said. It was all done from then on from inside. I learned about what inside education is about, and we'll talk about that after the coffee break. But the point I want to press home is that as a Westerner, the concept of surrender had been very um, um, unpalatable to me because it was ego surrender and ego meant giving up to somebody else. It was like a power struggle that you lost. And this man was at the place where there was no other person you were giving up to. I can't get too close to this yet until I tell you more things, but I can give you the feeling for it now. And everything I did from then on was done with absolute joy. There was no thing they could ask of me that was too hard. It was austerities that were not austere. No matter what it was, tapas that was certainly not, uh, not in any way difficult to do. Because I was living almost within this man within this manner. For the first time, I understood what the concept of a guru was about. You see, a guru is your doorway to God, your doorway to the beyond. A guru is not just a groovy teacher. You know, it's not a pundit. It's not just a wise man who can teach you things. A guru is a spiritual vehicle, an entranceway. He's a pure mirror. He isn't anybody at all. There is a, uh, a paragraph that is the last thing that René Dumas wrote in Mount Analog, which is very appropriate at this moment. He didn't finish the book, he died, but he had notes for the end of it that his wife had included in the book, and this was the last note he had written. By our calculations, thinking of nothing else, by our desires, abandoning all other hopes, by our efforts, renouncing all bodily comforts, we manage to gain entrance into this new world, 
so it seemed to us. But we learned later that if we were able to approach Mount Analog, it was because the invisible doors of that invisible country had been opened to us by those who guard them. The cock crowing in the milky dawn thinks that its call raises the sun. The child howling in the closed room thinks that its cry opens the door. But son and mother follow courses set by their own beings. Those who see us, even though we cannot see them, open the door in answer to our puerile calculations, our unsteady desires, and our awkward efforts with a generous welcome. And that's much more the way the universe really is. And just to reflect upon as you sip your coffee, let me say, as it turned out later, Bhagwan Das had been meditating in a monastery prior to going to Kathmandu, had just left Kathmandu, and he got an internal message to go to Kathmandu. And as it turned out later, I found out that the guru had sent for me. That's fun, isn't it? Enjoy your coffee. We'll commence again in 15 minutes. What has been said thus far is, from one way of looking at it, an introduction. Uh, from perhaps another level of looking at it, it is that which I truly have to offer you. Because what I will talk about from now on is what happened after I stayed at the temple, what training I received, what they taught me, and how what I learned about what is that state of consciousness that the guru is in, and so on. And all of that is meaningful to, you can really only hear it when you share with me a very firm faith, faith. And the first part of this afternoon was really to convey to you the way in which my own faith evolved. <clears throat> Part and parcel of Western ways of thinking that uh, almost are built into the way in which one tests the null hypothesis in science. 
is a type of cynicism and it is just that type of cynicism of I don't believe it show me that closes all these doors to us in the West we feel we're going to be conned if we allow ourselves to have this irresponsible emotional faith that we can't justify to a hard-headed scientist. And it's really only by telling that story that I know how to convey to you that which is really uh, unlabelable other than by uh, implication. Because what I evolved, it's interesting, as I was going to leave India, the guru had said to me, is there something you want? And I thought about it for a number of weeks and I came back and I said to him, the only thing I can think that I want is not to lose faith. Because as long as, no matter how bad it gets, I know of this possibility. I have that faith to keep struggling to pursue my sadhana. And that's a very ephemeral thing to convey to another human being, is one's is faith to be able to do the work. See, all of you know everything you need to know to do a lot on yourselves. But many of you doubt too much whether or not A, you can do it, B, whether it'll pay off, C, whether there's any payoff really there at all, or is it just sign of mushy-headed thinking on a pack of hallucinating romantics. Not you people don't think that so much, but we Western consciousness think that, the rational mind. Because this system that we're going to be dealing with is, in large part, meta to the rational system, superior to it, above it, beyond it, behind it, inside it. And a system cannot look at something outside of itself, by definition. And since we only know the world as we know it through our rational minds and our senses, that which is available to us other ways, we tend to reject. And we tend, in order to reject it, to attach a certain kind of emotional rejection to it. I mean, we, do our, we have a self-righteous cynicism <laughs> that we apply. William James, in his Varieties of Religious Experience, said, and I think I can quote, it's a very famous paragraph, he said, Our normal waking consciousness is but one special type of consciousness, whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie other consciousnesses, other forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life 
without ever suspecting their existence. But apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch, they are all there in their entirety. Types, different types of mentality, which probably somewhere have their field of application or adaptation. No account of the universe can be total, which leaves these other types of consciousness quite disregarded. But how to regard them is the question, for they are so discontinuous with our normal consciousness. They may determine our attitudes, though they fail to furnish formulas. They may open a region, though they do not give a map. At any rate, they forbid the premature closing of our accounts with reality. And that was as close as he would come. It was right at that cusp between science and what we call the mystical. And all he said was, don't throw it out too fast. Keep the door open. I was just asked to review a book for the uh, Journal of Contemporary Psychology. And it was called um, Trance and Possession States. It was a book of, uh, it was a symposium from, uh, from the uh, Buck Memorial uh, work in Canada. Very interesting, very interesting. For the most part, it was a type of reductionistic endeavor of explaining away all of the possession states and trance states in terms of clinical pathology. The anthropologists could be free of it because they have the delightful occupation of merely pointing, saying, wow, look at that, look at that. They don't have to put it down as the theoretician does or the psychologist. And the religious people in there were all mainly Western religi re religios who were explaining it away, saying we need a greater psychology of religion, by which they mean the way in which personality is involved with religion, which has nothing whatsoever to do with the spirit. But that paragraph from William James was at the end of one of the articles, which was one of the better articles, and it struck me as humorous that the, art, the quote was there, although the whole rest of the book was as if a complete denial of the meaning of that quote. And so and even in order to be... You see, I read the books that I'm now working with in my own training five years ago. And I knew them well enough to give lectures on them. I mean, I intellectually understood them, the theory behind them, but they meant nothing to me. They weren't 
they were just as if they had been written in another language. They just, when I read them now, yeah, right. That's what it means. That's what just, oh, that's that feeling. Oh, yeah. Because now I was open in that way. I had said, all right, I won't be a Western social scientist anymore. I'll be a, an Eastern scientist. I'll study the science of yoga. I'll go the whole trip. <clears throat> Who knows where it'll come up? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Mr. Irwin pointed out to me that maybe my last remark at the before the coffee break could have been misconstrued in the view of the fact that I suggested that since my guru had sent for me, maybe I was merely on a messianic trip. He didn't say that. I interpreted that. Um, when I light the incense at the beginning of our meeting, I reverence and invoke the guru. Now, it's hard for anybody that is sitting in the audience holding tightly to their Western cynicism to understand when I say that there is literally no me of any significance left and that I am specifically a vehicle through which he is working and that I know that and I just don't surmise it I know that. And therefore, what I do when I come up here is literally go on automatic. I'm merely a rent-a-robot. <laughs> and I haven't any idea what the game is involved. Maybe his whole life and my whole life was in order to be able to say one word which will be the clue for one of you to use, and that was the meaning of it all. Who knows? And you're the one. What is the one? It's a continuous cycle. We're all becoming more conscious. We're all at different points in the cycle. And to get hung up in one's individual social identity and social role is an attachment that we can ill afford. We can ill afford. Now, the actual teaching that I was subjected to at the temple was not presented by the guru. I saw very little of him. It was taught to me by another jungle sadhu, jungle holy man, extraordinary person. My teacher had, was about, he's about 50 years old. He left home and he went into the jungle at about eight years old. He's a Brahmin, he's of the highest, the priestly caste in India. Very pure man, very pure man. There are certain unusual qualities about him, to say the least. 
Uh, first, he's silent. He's Mauna. He's been silent for 15 years. So all the teaching was done by chalkboard, which is kind of a cop-out, but it's all right. I mean, it's different than using the energy directly. And I was silent all the time I was at the temple. I was, for all those months, I was using the chalkboard also. Extraordinary discipline. He um, reads and writes about eight languages, different languages, not dialects, languages. Has had no formal schooling that I know of. Very erudite person. Taught me in English, beautiful English. The uh, many um, grustas, householders, come and they give money to the guru. And this money is often used to build temples. And my teacher is the person who architecturally designs all the temples, hires all the help, buys all the materials, supervises all the building, pays all the help, runs all the temples, did all the teaching of me, has many devotees of his own, sleeps two hours a night, he weighs 90 pounds. His total food intake for 15 years has been two glasses of milk a day. Right? According to the World Health Organization, he's dead. <laughs> Very unusual fellow. Has many powers, many powers. Yeah, he undertook my training through, uh, I don't know how it was arranged, but there he was teaching me. And um, it was many months before I understood that what he was teaching me was a highly traditional, highly systematic, highly formal body of knowledge because he taught it so exquisitely that he taught it from inside me. It was very much like a lotus unfolding. It was as if he would lead me to ask to wonder the next thing, and just as I would wonder, there he would be handing me the answer. So it was this most unusual feeling I had that I was, it was all coming out of me, I was learning it all myself, and that it was um, completely tailored to me and it had nothing to do with any system. And then I could come back and I could pick up one of these books on Ashtanga Yoga and I could read them and they're practically direct statements of the things I was learning. It taught me a lot about education, a thing of which I had been a professor for a number of years. The basis of the teaching, Ashtanga Yoga or Raja Yoga, is really an eclectic type of yoga. It's, a, it's everything but the kitchen sink. You go all methods at once in order to reach enlightenment. And it's systematically, Ashtanga means eight limbs, eight-limbed yoga.
The basic approach is to purify the body and purify the thought process, to then bring the thought process down to single-pointedness of mind, such as any meditation does, at the same time to learn how to work with, mobilize, and direct and control the energy within the system, in the body, and then to put the energy through that one-pointed thing like a laser beam and then turn the whole thing back on itself. That's the process. Now, when I used to wonder when I took drugs why I came down, see, after the guru swallowed all that acid, it, it, as if I sort of lost interest in drugs. I am deeply appreciative of what they have done for me. I would like to be able to take LSD every six months or a year to see where it's and I am at in relation to one another and what I can remember that I have forgotten. My guru never has told me not to do anything, nor has my teacher, just as they never required any contract from me. It was up to me, it's my journey. Each person's on his own journey. The, uh, we can only be there for one another. And each person hears what he can hear and does what he can do. And any time you have to do it because somebody made you agree to do it, you can be sure that the motivation is not sufficient to be able to do austerities that are not austere. The first um, limb of this yoga is called yama. It's mainly purification. But it's got a lot of things that we Westerners have got to re-examine. And it helps us a lot, I think. There are some of, some of them which are complex, uh, which and we're not going into many of them in any detail. I'm going to give you just a survey of the feeling of what it's all about and how I understand what's happening in Western terms. The five of these in Yama, there are five subdivisions, is non-killing, non-stealing, or taking that which is some is property of others, truthfulness, not lying, not receiving of gifts, that is not taking something for one's own enjoyment. It's something to do with possessions and brahmachari, which means continence. Now, when Bhagwan Das, this vital, vibrant 23-year-old Westerner, first said to me, well, you know, um, I'm uh, brahmachari, and probably you'll want to become so too, the thought appalled me, as it does most Westerners. We have just gotten to our new experience of sexual freedom, Sex is just coming of age as an open matter. And it is a very hard matter for a Westerner to consider the idea of suspending his external sexual activities in order to pursue his yoga. So I just laughed <laughs> because sex was one of the very important things of my life, all kinds, all kinds. I think I had 
partly for neurosis and partly just for psychology and partly just because I was a tremendous sensualist and partly because I was a Freudian and partly for many reasons I had to try everything lots. Every what would be called normal and perverse form of sex. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.